Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've got to love the Hubble Space Telescope, don't you? It's been uh, in action now for 17 years, but uh, there were some problems with it, and in May of this year, NASA sent up a mission to sort out those problems. They've fixed the problems, and uh, she's back in action. Three weeks ago, Hubble started uh, sending some more images of uh, what it had uh, seen in outer space. Stunningly clear images. Images like this one. It looks a bit like a butterfly, doesn't it? Uh, this uh, butterfly image is a nebula. It's a, a cloud of dust and gas uh, from a dying star uh, a star which is estimated to be five times the mass of our sun. Scientists estimate that the gas that you see in this nebula is pretty hot, 20,000 degrees Celsius, most likely, and it travels. It travels at speeds of about a million kilometres an hour. That's awesome, isn't it? Uh, uh, there, are, there are many shots that Hubble has sent back three weeks ago. I'd love to show you them all, but uh, here's just one other one. Uh, this is a massive three light year long pillar of gas and dust uh, from where stars burst into life. This one, they estimate, is about seven and a half thousand light years from planet Earth. Now, these repairs to Hubble have made Hubble far more powerful than what it was before, far more effective. And what it means is that we humans are now in a better position to observe our galaxy than we have ever been in before. But how do we respond to this knowledge? And this nebula is seven and a half thousand light years away. That's not the furthest thing which... Uh, uh, which Hubble has sent back images from, but this is one thing, seven and a half thousand light years away. Have you got any idea of that distance? Uh, one light year is 9.5 trillion kilometres. 
9.5 trillion kilometres for one light year, this thing is 7,500 of those away from us. I've got the mathematician in our household to do the sums on this, and that's what he came up with. 71, and then add, uh, how many is that? 15 zeros after it. Now, uh, it's, I mean, when we think about that, it, we don't just respond intellectually, do we? Uh, we, are, we, are, we are struck. We are struck with awe by the distance, by the size, by the enormity, by the majesty uh, of uh, what we see here. But you don't need Hubble to be impressed by the universe and by the world around us, do you? Human beings have always been uh, very keen observers of, of nature and uh, over thousands of years, as men and women have gazed into the, uh, into the vastness of the night sky or as we have studied the grand array of creatures, the plants, the birds, the animals and so on, we have been amazed by the beauty, by the complexity and by the good order in what we see. And so conclusions have been drawn. Many people in societies have come to the conclusion that behind all of this that there is a spiritual reality, that there is a great spiritual being or beings, plural. As Christians, we believe in the God who designed created and sustains the entire universe. But some people say that it is not necessary to conclude that the universe has been created by a God. They say that it is uh, more than possible that uh, physical matter and physical processes have always existed in some form or another, have existed eternally, but without the need for an eternal God, a creator being. And uh, over the past few years, uh, this has become more an issue for public discussion. The uh, atheists have become more vocal and more uh, militant in terms of putting forward their view. Uh, we see it uh, at an academic level where there have been uh, atheistic, academic works have been published but uh, you and I are far more likely to come across it at the popular level. There has been marketing campaigns. Atheism is on the march. Atheisms, atheists have been marketing uh, their ideas. Barely a week goes by these days when uh, the newspapers do not carry an article on atheism or a quote from a famous atheist in just in the past week. Uh, I've seen more than uh, two, about two or three articles in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald and other popular uh, newspapers. Now, on the front line for atheism has been Professor Richard Dawkins from Oxford University. In 2006, his book, The God Delusion, was published. Uh, many people have read this book. It achieved uh, a rank of number four on the New York Times non-fiction hardcover bestseller list and what that means is that a lot of people have read this book 
it's been translated into at last count from my research thirty one different languages and indeed i know for a fact that some of your non-christian friends and workmates have read this book i've got a non-christian mate of mine who's read this book and has offered to lend it to me last year there was the atheist bus campaign where the British Humanist Society, in uh, association with Richard Dawkins, organised uh, financing for 800 public buses in the UK to be driving around with that sign on it. Do you see that? Uh, the signs, it's very bold, isn't it? You wouldn't miss this sign if the bus uh, drove past. It says, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. They've inserted the word probably in order to avoid lawsuits against them because if they say uh, absolutely there is no God, then that becomes an issue for a greater debate. And so they inserted the word probably. Uh, last July, July of this year, the first atheist summer camp for children was uh, established in Britain. The goal of the Atheist Summer Camp is to provide a godless alternative to the concept of the Christian-based church summer camps. The uh, boys and girls uh, come together on this camp uh, where they play various games. Uh, the prizes that are on offer for the games they play are things like a £10 note uh, autographed by Richard Dawkins. They sit around the campfire at night and they sing John Lennon songs like Imagine There's No Heaven and No Religion Too. And so it's popular and it's growing and your friends have been exposed to it. And so it's important for us as Christians to engage uh, with uh, this kind of thinking, to engage with our society, uh, to understand what people are being exposed to, how they're thinking, and how we ought to respond to that. Because these new atheists, they're not just saying that God doesn't exist. Uh, they go further than that. They say that belief in God, or some of them at least, say that belief in God is dangerous, uh, which is extraordinary because all of the studies that have, most of the studies that have been conducted in terms of whether believing in God is helpful for you have not have shown that believing in God actually improves your health. But what they say is that belief in God is dangerous and therefore it needs to be eradicated. Some of the atheists are saying that. Uh, they say that uh, belief in God causes people to do um, terrible things, uh, like slamming jets into skyscrapers and so on. Belief in God, they say, suffocates the pursuit of knowledge. Uh, they say that uh, people take the position whereby if there is something about the world which we don't understand, then we just say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's what God did, uh, rather than actually pursue scientific inquiry. And they say that it's wrong for parents to teach their children about God, uh, that that's child abuse to do so. They argue that atheism is morally superior to a belief in God. 
So what are we to make of all of this? Well, what, do you, what do you say to your non-Christian friend who has read the book or has seen the TV documentaries or has picked up the newspaper and read a comment by a prominent uh, scientist who is actually arguing for atheism and your non-Christian th- friend thinks, well, it, it must be true. That's what the scientists are saying. Uh, what do you say to the non-Christian who's wrestling with these issues or the non-Christian who firmly has a belief that God does not exist or that we cannot know that God exists, which is the agnostic position. Indeed, why do you and I believe in the existence of God? Now, over the next couple of weeks, what I'd like to do is I'd like to explore some of these issues with you. Uh, But I don't want to be giving lectures on atheism because you haven't come here for that, have you? You've come here to hear the Bible being taught, right? Okay, we've come here to hear the Bible being taught. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at some Bible passages and expound on those passages and in so doing though to, to uh, make illustrations and to draw some implications which feed into this whole debate about whether God exists or not and to help to equip us to be able to respond rightly to our friends as we ourselves think through these issues. Now, to be uh, frank, the Bible doesn't actually have a whole lot to say about atheism. Uh, There's one or two verses. Psalm 14, for example, says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. Um, But um, there's a reason why the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about atheism. The reason is because in the ancient world, and I would argue in our world today, most people believe in the existence of God or of gods in the plural. But nevertheless, the Bible does tell us that we can know that God exists. How so? Well, we can know that God exists because God has revealed himself to us. Uh, There are three ways by which God has revealed himself to us. Uh, Firstly, through the evidence of the physical world around us, through what we would say is creation. Uh, Secondly, he has revealed himself to us because he has spoken to us. He has spoken to to men, uh, sometimes to individual men, men like Moses as he was confronted by the burning bush and so on. But he spoke uh, to uh, prophets and he spoke to, uh, to us through the prophets. And ultimately, God has revealed himself to us by becoming one of us, so that when you meet Jesus, you meet God. Now, these are the kind of issues that I'd like us to uh, consider over this next couple of weeks. But this morning, I'd like to kick off by getting you to turn briefly to Psalm 8. If you'd like to open that up in front of you in your Bibles on page 386, the psalm which uh, Wayne read to us earlier on. Psalm 8 is a psalm which resonates very well with a lot of people because what we see described here is the response of a particular man, an ordinary man, responding to what he sees as he observes and contemplates the physical world around. Now, a lot of psalms are prayers, aren't they? They are, uh, the, the psalmist is crying out to God for help. 
And we see that in the in three or four psalm, the three or four psalms immediately preceding Psalm 8. They are cries to God for help, prayers. But when we get to Psalm 8, uh, it's not a prayer, it's, it's a psalm of praise. Uh, it's a psalm of praise which, uh, which says some important things ab- about the God to whom we pray. And it says some important things not only about God, but also about us, about humankind. Now, how does it start? Well, if you look carefully at the psalm, you'll see that the psalm starts and finishes in exactly the same way. It starts and finishes by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, when the Bible speaks about the majesty or the greatness of someone's name, uh, it's not saying it's a beautiful name to have. Uh, what it's saying, it's, it's talking about who they are, what they are like, and what they have achieved. So that when the author of this psalm looks at the, at the world around, uh, he sees the name of God stamped all over it. The, the, uh, the, the person of God, the, the character of God, the, the works of God. He sees the handiwork of God in the world. That's how he interprets what he observes. And in verse 3, when he looks up to the heavens, what does he see? He sees the works of God's fingers. In other words, he believes in a majestic God, a God who has created all things, a God whose character and creative genius is revealed in that which he has made, in the creation. Now, that is a, that's the biblical view. That's the biblical assumption. Uh, we see it expanded upon by the Apostle Paul, if you turn over briefly to Romans chapter 1, because in Romans chapter 1, which you'll find on page, ooh, what is it? Page 796. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, this is what Paul says. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now, in logic, uh, there is a difference between evidence and and proof. Um, I think there's only one field, one discipline in which you can come up with... um, absolute proof of something. I think that's mathematics. Any mathematicians here who can confirm that? Mathematics. Uh, there's our extension to math student at the back, put us, puts up his hand and says yes. Uh, mathematics uh, can give you absolute proof. Uh, in all other areas, uh, we, we look at evidences and we draw conclusions from those evidences. 
in science, in law, uh, in other areas. And that's how we live our lives. Uh, we draw conclusions from evidences that we see. And that's what we see here. Uh, the Bible writers uh, look at the evidence of the, the greatness, of the grandeur, of the complexity, of the in intricacy, of the, uh, of the design that we see in all of creation and they are driven to the conclusion that there is a designer. Right? Now, the atheists would say no to that. They would say that although we look at nature, for example, the complexity of the human eye, which I can't even wrap my mind around, and you look at the intricacy of the human eye and so many other things, all other things. They say that everything can be explained by science in the physical world. And if everything can be explained by science, that therefore you do not need God to explain the things that you don't understand. Now, in a sense, they're tapping into some... Um, spurious uh, thinking of some Christians in the past and probably some Christians today who uh, adhere to what's called a God of the gaps theory. You know, that anything you can't explain, you just say, well, God did it. And so as science makes greater progress in discovering how things work, those gaps get smaller and smaller and so does the need to have a God to fill the gaps. So they're tapping into that kind... And we would, we would reject the God of the gaps theory. We would say that that, that that is wrong. I would say that that's wrong. Because it's, we don't need God only because there are things we don't understand and he becomes the explanation for the things which we don't understand. Indeed, some of the people who've got the greatest knowledge of how things work some of the most prominent scientists in the world believe very strongly in the existence of God. Uh, they would say that science explains the, the how things are done, but they do not explain the why or the how things came into existence in the first place. Uh, for example, uh, when it comes to understanding how the human body works, uh, it seems to me that uh, it, it doesn't come too much more complex than understanding genetics and DNA. The Human Genome Project has made great advances in terms of our understanding of, of human genetics and, and DNA. And uh, for 15 years, the uh, geneticist who was in charge of the National Centre for Human Genome Research in the United States, which is the uh, institute which, which uh, conducted the Human Genome Project, uh, the geneticist in charge of that project was Dr Francis Collins. He's considered to be one of the most accomplished scientists of our day. And he finished that job last year 
this year barack obama nominated him to the position of the director of the national institutes of health in the united states the u s. senate, i understand, last month has confirmed that appointment now dr francis collins used to be an atheist a committed thought-through atheist he was an atheist who did a lot of thinking about the human body about what makes us the way that we are he's an atheist who did a lot of thinking about the world and the universe he did a lot of thinking about cosmology but eventually he came to the view that he was wrong he came to the view that it is appropriate that it is very appropriate that it is more than just appropriate to believe in the existence of god now he's no fool he lives on the cutting edge of uh, scientific inquiry but far from saying that because science explains things that therefore that there is no longer any need to believe in the existence of god far from saying that he in fact now believes trusts loves and obeys god as an evangelical christian man in his book which is called the language of god he says that he considers scientific discoveries to be an opportunity to worship god right now in that sense i don't think he's much different from the author of psalm 8 is he uh, because in Psalm 8, in verses 4 through to 8, as the psalmist looks to the, to the heavens, he worships God. And more than that, he has another question on his mind as well. Because if you have a look at verse 4, having considered the grandeur of the universe, the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? If the universe is so incomprehensibly awesome and if the universe has been created by God then therefore God is more complex than the universe that therefore the God who has created the universe is even far more incomprehensibly awesome if that is what God is like then what are we to him? What are we? Not even mere microscopic specks in the universe. Now at this point the psalmist has got an advantage because he not only knows that God has revealed himself through the creation, he knows that God has revealed himself through the prophets, through what has been written as scripture. And in this regard... Uh, Wayne read earlier to us from Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, we are told two very important things about ourselves, about what is man. We are told that we have been created in the image of God, which means many things, but uh, amongst which means that we've been created in relationship with God. And we have been made, secondly, in order to rule the world. To rule the world under the authority of God. To rule the world in accordance with God's ways. We see this in uh, verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 8. If you 
care to look at that? He says, you know, what is man? What is the son of man that you are mindful of him? Well, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Who is man? Why are we here? What is our purpose? One of the greatest yearnings of the human heart is for purpose and meaning and value in life. Some atheists say, and this is what's being said currently, it's of course a theory, cannot be proven, but what some of the atheists today are saying is that evolution causes us to believe in the existence of God. That's a bit of an uh, unusual thing to say, isn't it? Um, but it makes sense uh, if you, you know, take their position. Because what they say is that people who believe in God tend to survive better. <laughs> I'm into that. <laughs> and because the evolutionary process is about the survival of the fittest, therefore the fittest pass on their genes to the next generation, so therefore people who believe in God, who survive better, pass on this God gene to their descendants and that has now permeated the human race. So there you go. Evolution causes us to believe in God. Fascinating. And that's why we crave after God. That's why we crave a meaning and a purpose to be found in God. Well, Psalm 8 has a different view than that and a far more satisfying view because in Psalm 8 <clears throat> we're told that we crave meaning and purpose because we've been created for a purpose. In Psalm 8, the God of the universe has made you and I with the purpose of living in relationship with him. We are the pinnacle of his creation. We are the ruler of his creation. We have been made to live in obedience to God. But there's the problem, isn't it? Because we don't. Uh, because rather than using our unique position in order to serve God, we reject God. Uh, and we live our lives serving ourselves. It's not just the atheists who reject God. The normal human position is to believe that God exists but to live as if he doesn't exist. That is the normal human position. All humans have turned away from God, whether they believe that he exists or not. We live our lives not God's way, as we should in Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, but we live our way. One of the big arguments that the atheists use is the moral argument and I hope to talk about this next, next time perhaps 
and what they say is that you shouldn't believe in the existence of God because so many people have used God in order to pursue their own goals. From the greedy televangelists in their shiny suits uh, through to the fanatics who blow people up. And at that point, we'd have to say, well, we agree that that's wrong. We agree that those actions are wrong and we agree that it is very wrong to use God in order to pursue your own agenda. But the atheists can do that as well. Uh, there was a story which was in the newspaper two weeks ago uh, on September the 7th about the president of the British Science Association, a man by the name of Lord May. Uh, Lord May is a committed atheist. And he's also a man who, like many of us, is concerned that the human race is not looking after our planet particularly well. And so his solution is that maybe we should start believing in God again. Uh, he said, and I quote, a supernatural punisher may be part of the solution. Uh, he said, and I paraphrase, that if people won't listen to the governments and the scientists, then maybe they might listen to this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-judging deity who will condemn them. <laughs> That's what he said. Now, if you think that sounds hypocritical, well, it's not really, because he is one of those atheists who believes that it's more than possible that a belief in God has been caused by evolution. And so, given that the goal of evolution is the survival of the fittest and survival of the race, if evolution has given us this God gene and the God gene helps us to look after our planet better and therefore survive, then it's got to be a good thing, irrespective of the fact that he thinks it's a load of hogwash, that God exists. All right? That's the logic. A worthy cause? But how about that? A committed atheist who wants to use belief in God to control human behaviour. No, friends... Human selfishness, even by people who invoke the name of God, is no argument against the existence of God, quite obviously. In fact, it's the opposite. In fact, it confirms everything which we say about God. It confirms everything that the Bible says about God and about humanity and about the problems that we experience. It confirms what the Bible says, that we, there is a creator of the universe against whom we have rebelled. We have rejected him and that we do deserve his punishment. But the Bible tells us in the gospel that he himself has taken that punishment upon himself. How do we know for sure that God exists? Well, Psalm 8 actually gives us a sneak preview of what I want us to look at next week. 
Because in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 16, the man Jesus was teaching in the temple in Jerusalem uh, when some children gathered around him and they began to praise and worship him. Now, in the Bible, there is only one person who is worthy of worship, is there not? Who is that person? God. God himself. And to receive worship, to accept worship when you're, when you're not God, uh, well, you're likely to end up in big trouble, as one of the Herods did. And so on this occasion, the chief priests and the teachers of the law rebuked Jesus. And they said to him, you know, why have you allowed this? Why are you allowing these children to worship you like this? And Jesus turned to them and said, well, have you not read where it says from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Where was he quoting from? He was quoting from Psalm 8 verse 2. That's where that came from. And so everything that Psalm 8 says about God and about God being worthy of our worship and our praise because he's the creator of the universe, in this statement Jesus applies to himself and allows himself to be worshipped, referring to Psalm 8. Because in Psalm 8, and Jesus by quoting Psalm 8, tells us that the God of the universe has become a man. And I want to speak more about that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in increasing degrees of clarity from the creation that we see around us uh, to your speaking to us through the prophets and then ultimately with crystal clarity in the person and work of your incarnate Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father God, that you would help us to clarify our own understanding of what it means that you are our creator. We pray that we ourselves would be uh, informed and equipped that we would be able to help people who are wrestling with these very issues. And Father, we boldly pray for the prominent atheists of our world. Uh, we pray for Richard Dawkins. We pray that as in the case of uh, Dr Collins, that you would work in his heart and reveal yourself to him. That he would uh, come to the understanding that however great our science is now understanding of how you have put this world together that science uh, does not teach us uh, that you do not exist but rather uh, that it is uh, through uh, our understanding of your world understanding of your word and our understanding of jesus that we can come to truly appreciate who you are we pray in jesus name Amen.